Two weeks ago, we started studying the book of Samuel, uh, and we walked through that book and saw how God was setting up an anointed king to reign over his people. Uh, This was not something that God initiated, but if you remember back in 1 Samuel, uh, the people asked to have a king like the rest of the nations had a king. Uh, And so God gave them Saul to be their king, and he was a guy who looked good. Uh, He was head and shoulders above everybody else. He came from a wealthy family, and God anointed him, had him anointed to be king, uh, but he was not a good king. His kingship was what he wanted it to be, and not really about God. He thought he was the one that was supposed to be in charge, so he did things his way. So God instead decided to anoint another man to be king, and throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, we see David as a man anointed to be king, but not king. And he goes through much suffering and and trial uh, in his life, and the the book of 1 Samuel ends with Saul finally uh, dying and David uh, having success, but we're now left wondering, how, how is David going to become king of Israel? Well, that's where 2 Samuel starts off. Really, the book of 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel, it was all just one book uh, in the Greek. Uh, We've separated it out for just length. Uh, And even before, it seems like it it was uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 3 Kings, 4 Kings. So really, it's all just a continual narrative as we work our way through these different books. But it helps us to understand a little bit uh, in, in blocks, so, so that's the way we're handling this. Uh, plus, it's just too much information to cover it all at once. Uh, as we look at Second Samuel, it starts off uh, right where First Samuel left off with talking about the death of Saul. Uh, and so in the very first chapter, we read that uh, David learns about Saul's death, and, and David hears about this from an Amalekite who brings... King Saul's crown to David, expecting to receive some kind of a reward. Uh, And David asks, how do you know for sure that Saul is dead? And the Amalekite lies and says, "Uh, I I killed him myself. And we we find out at the end of 1 Samuel, that's not really what happens. But he says, I killed him. Uh, And David says, were you not afraid to put the Lord's anointed to death? Remember, David was unwilling to kill the Lord's anointed. He's unwilling to kill Saul on two occasions. So uh, he's, he's upset with the Amalekite. He ends up putting the Amalekite to death. And instead of really being excited about the idea that Saul is now dead and that he is the anointed one and he is going to get to ascend to the throne, we see David sad about Saul's death. And this, this kind of shows us that characteristic of David, that he's different than Saul. He's different than all the men around him. He has this low, lowliness about him, this humility about him. And he has a desire for Saul to succeed. He loved Saul, and he loved Jonathan. He loved him so much that he ends up in chapter 1 writing a, a song of lament about how the mighty have fallen uh, in honor of Saul and Jonathan and all that they had done for Israel. In the next chapter, uh, we start to see David being anointed as a king of Judah, but he does not become king of Israel. Uh, The northern tribes uh, go after Abner, the commander, who who elects Ishbosheth, a son of Saul, to be their king. 
And then we have this period of rough transition from David being the king of Judah to David becoming the king of Israel. It starts with a civil war, uh, and then the civil war seems like it's about to come to an end, and then uh, Abner, the commander of Ishbosheth's army, comes and makes a covenant with David, but David's commander murders Abner, uh, and it seems like this civil war is going to keep going. Uh, but then someone assassinates Ishbosheth and brings the head of Ishbosheth to David, expecting to receive a reward. I've conquered your enemies. <laughs> but once again, David says, You killed a righteous man. You know, this is not something that you're going to be rewarded for. This is something worthy of judgment. So he executes those men who bring the head of Ishbosheth. And then finally we see David made king over all Israel as the elders realize that this was God's will. This is God's doing. God is the one who appointed David, anointed David to be the, the king in Saul's place as Samuel had predicted, that the, the kingdom would be torn away from Saul and given to another man who is worthy. So this is, this is David's rise to power, how he becomes the king of Israel. And, and at the very end of chapter 5, we see uh, the Philistines, the great enemy of Saul, come in to try to attack David after he's conquered Jerusalem and set up his stronghold there. And these Philistines come in to attack, and, and David says, Lord, should we go out and fight? This is a characteristic of David. He always goes to God before he acts. He, he pursues God's will before doing what he thinks he should do. And God says, go and attack. I'll give him into your hands. So he attacks and he kills the Philistines. And then they attack again. And David again defeats the Philistines. And this is establishing David as the king and the anointed one who pleases the Lord and, and is over all of Israel. After David uh, rises to power... Uh, he then seeks the Lord. Uh, and so in chapters 6 through 9, after he has been given all of this power and, and, and seems to be the king over all Israel, he seeks after the Lord and he wants to bring the ark of God into Jerusalem, the holy city, the city that he has set up uh, to be the, the headquarters of his whole kingdom. And so he, he, he brings the ark in, or he starts bringing the ark in on a new cart uh, and he has men pulling the cart that uh, were not Kohathites. Um, uh, I forgot how you say that, Kohathites. Uh, and and they, are, they make the mistake. Uzzah makes a mistake and reaches out and touches the ark because it starts to fall. And God strikes him there. And David then leaves the ark behind. And he does not, uh, does not pursue that for a time. And then he goes back and he follows the commands of Moses. It turns out David hadn't followed the commands of Moses. It, in his seeking to bring the ark of God into the city, he had much the same mentality and idea of those Israelites before who brought the ark into their battle, right? <laughs> He's just wanting this ark to be this token thing. And God rebukes him and and this horrible tragedy takes place because he hasn't really thought about the Lord. He hasn't considered God's holiness and that God has prescribed a method for doing things. He just wants to do these things and be close to the Lord. He has a heart that desires the Lord, which is good, but he got lost in all of that desire. Uh, and then we see in chapter 7 
that that desire, that seeking after the Lord continues. And it comes up in a way uh, that, that's very interesting. Is he goes to Nathan the prophet and he asks him, I would like to build a house for the Lord. I built my own house. Now I want to build the temple for my God. And Nathan says, do all that's in your heart. But then God comes in and refuses to let David do this. Now, once again, we're just like, wait a second. What's going on? This is, this is the Lord's anointed. This is a man after God's own heart. You got the ark problem. And now you've got this temple problem that uh, David seems to be messing some things up. But what we also see is that even though God refuses David and says, you're, you're, you know, I took you from being a shepherd to ma and made you into this great king, and, and you're going to try to bless me and do all these things for me, you're kind of treating me like the other gods and the nations. And that's not really how it's going to work. I'm the one who blesses. I'm the one who determines these things. So we see David kind of acting like Israel, wanting to set up a king you know, and do things like other nations are doing, things like that. But God is patient with him. He's correcting him. He's helping him and he says to him uh, because you desire me so much I am going to establish your throne forever and here we find one of the most important uh, statements in the Old Testament another promise very much like the promise that was made to Abraham he promises David that uh, a descendant of his would rule on his throne for all eternity in chapter 7 uh, and so this is a very important promise in verse 16 your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all the vision Nathan spoke to David. So David is told, your kingdom's going to keep going and going and going because of your faithfulness to me. Now, this is the one thing that Saul pursued. And he pursued it so much that he, he uh, was jealous and he rebelled against God and he went after David and, and pursued David to try to destroy him, to, to perpetuate his kingdom, to keep the line going through him. But here we have God making a promise to David that all of your descendants will reign on this throne. And one of your descendants, uh, is made clear, will be on this throne forever. Uh, so, so there's an allusion here to Jesus that's very important and that will end up, uh, begin, that will end up uh, having a lot of significance moving forward in the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. After that, in chapter 8, after the blessing coming from God, we find David having all kinds of victories. He defeats every enemy that's around him. And all those enemies that he doesn't defeat, he defeated their enemies. So then those people come up and they start uh, giving him tribute because he has defeated their enemies for them. So he has all kinds of people blessing him. Uh, and he is blessed by the Lord with great uh, conquests over all the surrounding nations. He completes what, jo what Joshua started and providing the promised land for the people, uh, at least to some extent. In chapter 9, he, he turns around and, and blesses the less fortunate. He remembers his covenant with Jonathan and he blesses the son of Jonathan. So here we see in him this compassion, this mercy, this love, uh, this willingness to help those who are in need. Uh, and, and we get a better understanding about why he was chosen uh, to be the Lord's anointed. But unfortunately, in chapter 10, we start to see the fall of David. Uh, it begins with uh, just a normal 
it seems, encounter. David sends men to the Ammonites to uh, console the, the new king who has lost his father. And they see this as a threat, so they shame these men. And then they, they side with the Sidonians, or the Syrians, trying to uh, prepare themselves for war against Israel. And David just sent men to console them, but they instead shame those men and prepare themselves for war. So uh, Israel goes up in battle against the Syrians and the Ammonites, and they, they have great success in the battle at first. All the Syrians retreat, and the Ammonites go into their, their cities. And then it says that the next time, the, the spring, after the winter had passed, all those men were going to be going back to those cities of the Ammonites and trying to subject them to David's rule. Uh, and it tells us in chapter 11, verse 1, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So one thing we see here is David ends up uh, sending his men to, to accomplish the work that God has given him to do, and he stays back and remains in Jerusalem. Well, while he's there, he's up on his rooftop, which it kind of reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel's time, on the rooftop looking at all the, the vast kingdom and all the things that God has blessed him with, uh, and he looks out and he sees a woman bathing, uh, and her name is Bathsheba, and he ends up uh, taking her, and it doesn't even matter to him that she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his uh, mighty men. He takes her, he, he lays with her, and he, has, he impregnates her. Then he tries to deceive this, uh, this soldier of his to lay with her. And when he wouldn't do that, he has the soldier killed. So all of this really just seems odd because this is a man after God's own heart. He's not supposed to make these mistakes. This is, this is a huge fall. Yeah, he's made little mistakes in the past, but this is a major issue. This is the anointed, the one who has the right heart, the one who does the right things and has been faithful to the Lord in so many ways. And what we see is after he's received all of those blessings from the Lord, he then becomes apathetic, complacent, and that gives way to his sin. But hey, he's the king, so who cares, right? Nobody, I mean, this guy's a Hittite, right? He, who cares? He's a foreigner. And, and David is the king. Who cares if David takes his wife and kills, kills him? You know, no big deal. He does a lot of good things, right? Well, it turns out God cares a lot about this event. You read in the end of chapter 11... Uh, when the wife of Uriah, verse 26, heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We find out that God is not pleased with David and what David has done here. And in chapter 12, God sends his prophet to David and he tells him a parable about a man having a sheep who's a poor man and he loves that little lamb and takes care of him. And then another man who's rich, has many sheep, uh, has a foreigner come and instead of taking one of his sheep, he takes the poor man's sheep, he kills it and he offers it to his foreign friend as a meal. Well, David's upset about this and, finds that, and he wants the man to restore it fourfold. And he says the man deserves to die. And it turns out, as Nathan responds to him, that was a parable representing what David had done against Uriah the Hittite 
in stealing his wife and having him murdered. So David uh, hears about his sin, and God tells him in verse 11 all the things that he's going to do to punish him. And David responds with, I have sinned against the Lord, in verse 13. But Nathan says to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And so here we see that as David did all these sins against his fellow man, God took offense to it, and he said, You have utterly scorned me by sinning in this way against your brother. Yet God is willing to, to give him mercy. Uh, he has put away the sins of David. He does not kill David. He allows David to continue to live and to reign on the throne. But there will be consequences for his actions. And the rest of 2 Samuel tells us all about those consequences. As we get into chapter 13, it starts off with, Now Absalom... David's son had a beautiful sister, and it tells us Absalom's name first because really chapters 13 all the way through uh, 19 are going to be all about Absalom. Uh, and the very first part of this in chapter 13, we see uh, God beginning this process of providentially judging David for this horrible sin that he's done. This was part of his punishment, that, that because he had done this great evil, God was going to punish David by uh, making it to where the sword would not depart from his house all the days of his life. His, his own family was going to start destroying themselves. And it starts off in chapter 13 with his oldest son, Amnon, raping his daughter, Tamar. Uh, and, and as a result of this, Absalom, the, the brother of Tamar, ends up murdering Amnon, and then he flees. And this all happens in chapter 13. A major, a major crisis, a major tragedy happening in David's own family. As his oldest son is, uh, is guilty of a, a horrible sin... Uh, his daughter is, has been raped and is dealing with that. And then another son is guilty of murdering one of his own sons. What a horrible event to have to deal with. In the next chapters, we see Absalom returning uh, from, from being an exile as Joab steps in and, and allows for him to return. Uh, David allows that to happen and even allows him to come back into his presence. But in response to this, Absalom ends up conspiring against David to take away Jerusalem from him. He gets all the people of Judah and Israel behind him so that he's able to come in and take over Jerusalem. And, and David and his mighty men and, and many others are, are exiled from the city and forced to live out in Gilead away from Jerusalem. This doesn't end well, though, for Absalom. As he comes into the city, he, he sets himself up as king. He sleeps with David's concubines, and then he goes out to battle against David. And it turns out God was with David. God defeats most of Absalom's army by himself, as the forest claims more men than David's army does. And Joab, the commander of David's army, against the will of David, puts Absalom to death. 
Well, this saddens David greatly because he knows that his own son's death and this whole debacle is the result of his sin. And this is what he says at the end of, of, of this in chapter 18, verse 33. The king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. David is, is cut to the heart because he knows his sin has led to this. And he wishes that he himself could die for the sake of his son and bring his son back to life. After this, we see David uh, returning to Jerusalem. Uh, he pardons his enemies on his way in, those who have, have led him to be exiles. He just pardons them, forgives them of all their sins and treason against him. And he, he suppresses then another rebellion that pops up at the hands of a man named Sheba. And then we read in chapter 21 that he clears the blood guilt that was in the land at the hands of Saul because of the evil that Saul had done. Then we get to the closing chapters of 2 Samuel, chapter 22 through chapter 24. Chapter 22 begins with a beautiful song about how God has always been with David and delivered him from all of his enemies and from all those, all those trials and all those tribulations that he's been through. And he just goes through and he, he describes the salvation of the Lord with vivid imagery and, and describes how God has washed him, made him so clean that he can call himself righteous before the Lord and delivered him from every strife and, and every enemy that has stood against him. He calls God his rock over and over again throughout this because God was always there for him. And there's a very interesting text here in, in chapter 22, verse 26 through 28, that really points to a theme that we could see all the way back in 1 Samuel. And it says, verse 26, when the merciful, With the merciful you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. In this song, David describes the working of God that we've seen throughout the entire book of Samuel. Remember at the very beginning, Hannah shows herself to be humble and God shows her mercy. Uh, we see uh, Samuel shown mercy in his, in his humility. We see David himself, because he was humble, he's shown great mercy and he's, he's shown uh, exaltation. He's exalted above Saul. He's exalted. They're all exalted above their enemies because of their humility. Yet the proud are brought down. And David has learned this lesson in his life, as maybe he himself has had to deal with, with pride and arrogance. He understands that God is able to bring down those who are haughty. In chapter 23, the first seven verses give us the very last words of David, which essentially just point to God's greatness and how God is ultimately the king over all of Israel, not David. Uh, he, is, he is speaking through David. He is ruling through David. And, and all of the things that he has accomplished, he attributes to God's graciousness toward him. 
And then in chapter 23, 8 through the end of the chapter, we read about all the mighty men of Israel and all the wonderful works that they did. And who was the one working in all these mighty men? It was the Lord. He gives all the credit to the Lord, who is the one who brings about the great victories in all of these mighty men, who, who in some cases kill 800 men by themselves. It's not because they're so great or so mighty, but it's because they have faith and the Lord is working through them. Then in the final chapter, in chapter 24, uh, we have a census given by David. Now this just seems odd. <laughs> seems like it had been a good end there with the mighty men. But here we have a census that David uh, enters into. And censuses aren't uh, evil, but yet God finds sin in this. And David himself finds that he has sinned in doing this. Because maybe of the way he has done it, he has not accepted the shekel per person that was supposed to be required of all Israel. Uh, but whatever it was, after he has this census done, it says in verse 10, his heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Notice how this is, this is kind of a weird ending where there's another sin and another punishment and God ends up allowing him to choose his punishment. But notice how David approaches this sin. Notice how he responds. Before the prophet even comes to David and reveals what he's done against God, David recognizes his sin, his heart is struck, and he turns to God and asks God to take the sin away. And God says he will, but there will be consequences again. For David's sin, and just as the covenant was made that... Uh, that said if they break the law there will be this judgment God has to bring about this judgment and he does and so pestilence comes on the land and 70,000 Israelites die and this pestilence starts to make its way toward Jerusalem but David speaks to the Lord in verse 17 it says David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said behold I have sinned and I have done wickedly but these sheep what have they done Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And then David offers a sacrifice. And he essentially becomes a mediator for the people to save them from the judgment of God. The people uh, had sinned, it turns out, in the very beginning of this. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel... And God had incited David against him. And that's kind of confusing. But uh, 1 Chronicles reveals that Satan was at work in all of this as well. But what we see here is David becoming this sacrificial mediator to stop the destruction of Israel for their own sins. Not just the sins of David. Uh, and so that's a very interesting picture we have to end this whole book. That we just kind of go, why is that there? And what is that trying to tell us about David? So what's the main point of this book? As we go through it, we really see this rise and peak and then major fall. And everything starts to go downhill. And then at the very end, we have all of these, uh, these extra things about David's life. And all this information is given to us about David. Well, 
before we talk about the book, let's think about how it's fit into all of the history that we've studied from Genesis all the way through to 2 Samuel. Remember back in Genesis, there was a promise that was made to Abraham, and we've been looking for God to fulfill that promise, wondering how he's going to do it and when he's going to do it, to bring about uh, the conquering of the promised land and to bring about uh, all the people becoming this mighty, huge nation and, and a seed from Abraham blessing all the earth. Well, as we learn about David, we start to wonder, maybe this is what God has in store. Maybe David is going to be the man who is the seed of Abraham who's going to bless all the people, but then he fails, doesn't he? The promises made to Abraham are not quite fulfilled in David, but God adds another promise in chapter 7 that he will set up an eternal king through the line of David. So instead of fulfilling the promise, God adds yet another promise uh, to the promise he's already made. It turns out David is going to be this type of king that will eventually come and free the people from their slavery to sin and set them uh, free to serve the Lord and have relationship with him. So David is a type of Jesus. As he conquers his enemies, as, as he pursues God's glory and, and seeks after the Lord, to seek after the, the ark of the Lord is to seek after God's presence, to seek after the temple of the Lord is to seek after God's presence and, and his will and his glory and everything, we see that Jesus is going to come and do the same things. But he's not a perfect fit. No, nobody is in the Old Testament, right? Uh, and David fails miserably. And it turns out, David is in need of redemption, just like we are. Whenever we get to, uh, to chapter 12 and we see the judgment against David, we're just kind of left going, wait a second. He committed murder. He committed adultery. God knows about it. Why doesn't God kill him? That would have been appropriate considering the law. Why isn't God going ahead and wiping him out? And so what we see in David is a really interesting picture that God is willing to forgive David because of who he is and the type of heart that he possesses. David is a man after God's own heart. It doesn't make him perfect, but that makes him favored by the Lord. When we think about Judah and his sin with, with um, Tamar, a different Tamar, uh, we think about uh, the sins of Abraham. We think about the sins of Jacob as he deceives. I mean, there's a lot of sinning going on that God seems to overlook. And as we see David, we're just blown away. Like, wait a second. How is it that God is able to forgive this man? Well, God finds favor in David's heart and his willingness to turn around from his sin and pursue the Lord yet again. As we look at the book of 2 Samuel, we learn, we add more to the storyline of David that shows us his growth, his development. He overcomes this apathy that he develops. We saw him dealing with his trials and his suffering in, in 1 Samuel, but now we see him dealing with the blessings and dealing with all the, the wonderful things that God gives him and failing miserably, but then growing out of the failure. He pursues God's mercy in response to his rebuke. He repents of his sins. 
He seeks after the will of God, not trying to do his own way and, and, and accomplish his own works, but leaning on God. And he learns to just deal with the consequences of his sins. In all of this, really, what we have in David is a wonderful example. Uh, and so as we think about how to apply this, what we see in this major failure from David, we need to learn from that there may be a time in our life when we grow apathetic, where we start thinking, oh, it's better for us to just stay at home. <laughs> it's better for us to just not uh, be out there working for the Lord. We got our other things that we're more interested in. And we're, we're happy enjoying all these blessings that God has given us. As God blesses us and blesses us, we might be tempted to become apathetic and to think, well, God must surely love me a lot to give me all these things. I better go ahead and be enjoying them. Well, what we see with David is that Satan finds an opportunity in apathy and in pride to bring about great tragedy and suffering. And this horrible sin of adultery is made this example for all of us to understand it will destroy our families. This is what adultery does. It destroys families. Stay away from this sin. Stay away from the temptations and the, the desires that might uh, rage inside of us to pursue someone who is not ours. Learn from David. David, we find out more information about him than really any other character in the Bible other than maybe, maybe Jesus. I mean, really, there's just so much information that is revealed about David. And what we see in him is a willingness to have all this information shared. He doesn't hold it in or he doesn't try to hide it. He lets everybody see and everybody know so that they can learn from his mistakes. And so really the application, the second, the major application in all of this book is that it's really easy for us to pursue our own will and our own ways like Saul, but instead we need to develop like David, the humility uh, David is this example of one who confesses his sins, repents of his sins, humbles himself and perseveres in what he knows to be true even when his sin has brought about tragic consequences. You get a picture of uh, somebody who's committed adultery today. And, and this person's committed adultery and then their spouse who is the victim... Uh, starts to give them a hard time and make their life really difficult, doesn't trust them, uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, expects them to let them know where they're at all the time and ask them all kinds of questions, and then they turn around and say, that's not fair. That's not David. That's Saul. A picture we have here is of a man who recognizes his sin and does not fight back against the Lord's decisions and against the punishment that he endures because of his own sin, but instead he has humility, he accepts the, the situation that he's in as a result of his sin, and he instead just continually seeks after the Lord, seeks after his deliverance, seeks after his help. And, and really, I'd say maybe the third application is, just like David in, in chapter 23, just keep seeking the Lord. No matter what, as we fail, as we make all kinds of mistakes in our lives, just keep pursuing Him. As we have consequences for our sins and it seems like our life is over and there's no hope for us, just keep pursuing Him. 
God is still faithful. Even though we suffer, even though life gets hard, even though we may lose a lot, David, in a sense, lost almost everything as he was kicked out of his own city. But he put his trust in the Lord, and the Lord gave it back to him. He did not seek his own uh, vengeance. He did not seek his own glory. He did not uh, become self-centered or selfish. Instead, he constantly pursued the will of the Lord. And this is a major thing for us to learn and to understand as we go through all the different trials and temptations in our lives. David was a wonderful example of who we need to be like. Not because of all his failures, <laughs> but because of how he responds to his failures. I don't like lessons that say, be like David, or be like Daniel, or be like this guy, or be like that guy. Because ultimately, they're imperfect. But as you look at this book as a whole, you see all the imperfections, but you see the bounce back. And I can't help but say, be like David. Bounce back. Put your faith and trust in God. As you have uh, consequences for your sins, as you make mistakes, don't rebel against the Lord like Saul. Don't have this attitude of rejecting the Lord, but instead submit to His will. Turn your heart back to Him and receive the grace and mercy that He promises to give. If He was graceful and merciful to David, surely He will be graceful and merciful to us. If there's anybody here tonight that needs to receive the grace of the Lord, we want to encourage you and help you in any way we can. Uh, if you will let us know what your needs are, uh, we will try to serve you. Uh, please come as we stand and as we sing.